Well, good morning. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is always a pleasure to be with you to share the Word of God. Last week, if you remember, uh, our, 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 we're, we're almost done with our study in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 13. It ended with a strong command uh, after saying that Jesus walked outside the, the, the city to suffer the reproaches of the cross. What, what did he ask the church to do? Go outside with Christ to share in the shame, to share in the suffering and in the burdens of the cross. I haven't been able to shake that command all week, especially as we approach a Good Friday weekend where we're we're to to think about the cross. How many Good Fridays do I show up hardened, distracted? I like to stay distant from the cross. And yet the text last week compels us to go outside and bear the reproach and the mocking and scorn that Jesus endured. The call to discipleship is a call to pick up our cross and to die with Christ, to suffer the reproaches with Jesus. I think most of us know this, but again, it's a journey that not many of us want to take, isn't it? Um, Not many of you wake up thinking, how can I suffer with Christ today? In fact, I I wonder how many of us think of it as an optional element of our discipleship. We'll leave the, the true suffering to the special forces, the, the missionaries and the martyrs and those who do the hard work. And the rest of us, we'll stay at a safe distance, carry our Bibles, go through the motions and, and try to honor God's kingdom from a distance. We'll use our influence, we'll use our wealth, our position in society to help the kingdom of God. Um, do we really have to pick up our cross and suffer? Isn't there another way? I wonder if that's a thought that ever goes through your mind. I certainly think that. Jesus actually asked the question, prayed three times in the garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there is another way, would you reveal it now? What was the the answer? Silence. There is no other way. The cross, I want you to hear this, is where God is working in the world. And if you want to experience the power and the wisdom of God this morning, go outside the city and suffer the reproach with Christ. Pick up your cross and suffer with Jesus. It's where he meets his people. My prayer this morning, and especially over the next couple of weeks, as we begin to to think through Passion Week and, and the sufferings of Christ, my prayer for us is that God would break our hardened hearts disrupt our busy lives so that we would be able to leave the comforts of the city, our own idols, our own pleasures, go outside the gates and suffer with Christ to experience the power of God. They go hand in hand. So this morning, what I want to do simply is to look at a few idols, a few comforts, a few reasons why we might keep a a safe distance from the cross. This is actually a big struggle in the Bible. Will you follow God where he's working or will you stay comfortably at a distance? Sometimes you see this embodied in a single person. The rich young ruler comes to mind. He had a lot of money. He had a lot of potential. He had a lot of influence. And when Jesus says, come, give all that up and follow me, what did he do? I I can't do it. I have too much to lose. And so he, he went away sad. Often we see this embodied in an entire community. And when that happens, it's really dangerous because the whole community can adopt idols to keep us away from experiencing the power of God. We're gonna study one such community this morning in Jeremiah chapter nine. So if you have your Bible, go to Jeremiah chapter nine. Jeremiah preached to a community that was arrogant, proud, self-righteous, but on the ground, they look good. They look religious. It looked like they had everything lined up perfectly, but Jeremiah was sent to preach to them to say, no, 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 stop trusting in that. Turn your hearts to God, to, to the cross. Jeremiah lived 600 years before the cross, and yet he tells us to turn to the cross. We'll show how at the end. 
If you're in Jeremiah chapter nine, I want to read two short verses. That's it. 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. And let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Pray with me. Father, I pray that your, your holy inspired word this morning would comfort us, it would convict us, it would challenge us to lead a holy life, Lord. I pray that you would convict the hard-hearted this morning, the proud. I pray that you would break them down. I pray that you would comfort the humbled, those who are broken and weary. I pray that we would have a reason this morning to boast in you. We do have the reason. I pray that we would have the confidence to boast in you today, God. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah 9, it's a familiar text. If it's not, if this is the first time you've stumbled upon this little gem in the Old Testament, it's time to mark up some Old Testament passages. Underline this. And at your dinner table this week, memorize this. This is a powerful text. And to understand it more fully, we need to get a bit of context. Jeremiah preached this, again, to a hardened, arrogant community. There's a climax. I'm really just picking off the part where the pastor gets really bold and fiery about three quarters of the way through the sermon. I'm just picking that part off. Jeremiah preached this sermon from chapter seven to 10. It's often called the temple sermon. Jeremiah preached to this hardened um, community. I want to, again, encourage you to read the entire text this week, but I'll give you a spoiler alert. It's a strong message. You're going to be reading some of it and you're going to go, this sounds like a Stephen King novel. The, the, just a few verses up, you're in 23, 24, just back up a little bit. You know, you ever heard of the Grim Reaper? That's where you get that imagery. Death is coming like a reaper. Death is crawling into the windows. It was a turbulent time and judgment was coming. And Jeremiah wanted the people to know that judgment was on the way. In fact, when he preached this message, guess who was in the north? The Babylonians, the mighty Babylonians with their armies ready to make an attack on Jerusalem. In chapter eight, this is what, it gives a chilling image. Listen to this. Verse 16. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan, the northernmost kingdom or the uh, tribe is Dan. At the sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and all who dwells in it. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. Terrifying image. Destruction was imminent. But here's the craziest thing. If you were on the streets of Jerusalem that day with the snorting of the Babylonians in earshot, you would have been surprised because everything was calm. In the, city, in the city of Jerusalem that day. They were like the Brits when Germany was invading. Keep calm, carry on, go about your normal business. That was what Israel was like when the Babylonians were coming. Why were they so confident? Chapter seven tells us. Jeremiah positioned himself at the gate of the temple and as he started to preach, he could hear these words as the people walked into the temple of the Lord. What were they saying? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Hebrew language doesn't have superlatives. And so when you triple a word, you're saying that we have our utmost confidence in this building. They thought they were safe. Yes, we hear the Babylonians. Yes, they're coming. Yes, they're mighty. We understand all of that. But what are they going to do? Are they going to really take down this temple? No way. We're fine. 
Now, if you know history, you know what happened. What did the Babylonians do? They took down the temple. They destroyed Jerusalem. But actually, if you think about it, they had some justification for their confidence. Back up a hundred years or so. You remember when the Assyrians' horses were heard from the north? The Assyrians came through. A few hundred years later, Babylonians came through. What happened when the Assyrians came on Jerusalem? It remained. Why? Because the great king Hezekiah realized he was helpless. No resources, no alliances, nothing against this dreadful Assyrian army. They had already destroyed the northern kingdom. They get to the gates of Jerusalem. They're mocking Hezekiah. They're mocking the Israelites. What did, Jer- what did Hezekiah do? Lifted up his hands and he prayed and he said, Lord, we have nothing. Would you come to our rescue? And God heard and God answered. Threat was over. In a single night, God opened their eyes. The angels of the Lord destroyed the Assyrians. The Assyrians went back, never to be heard from again. The threat was over. Fast forward, just, this is in their memory. They knew that the Assyrians were thwarted. And so once again, the Babylonians advanced, no big deal, we're fine. Keep calm, carry on. It gave them a false sense of security to live however they wanted. Now, unlike Hezekiah, who was trusting in God, they thought, well, the the temple is just this kind of good luck charm. And so they kind of detached themselves from God and they started to be lured away by the attractions of wealth and power and political alliances and education and wisdom. And so they delved into these pagan nations around them. They started worshiping the sun, moon, stars, the queen of heaven. They were crafting idols. And worst of all, they were sacrificing their infants in the fire to pagan gods, chilling. And to top it all off, they would walk into the temple of the Lord saying, the temple of the Lord, we're fine, we're safe. As one pastor said, they were an arrogant, godless, prideful people who would place self above God with no consideration whatsoever of repentance from their evil ways. And so Jeremiah was given the wearisome burden of correcting their bad theology. It's the life of a prophet. God is not committed to a stack of bricks in the Middle East. God is committed to the hearts of his people. And so at the peak of his sermon, I imagine with tears in his eyes, he proclaimed these powerful truths. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. The Israelites looked like a powerful community, untouchable. They had the temple. They had the right alliances. Their false prophets made them feel really good about themselves. The scribes had taken the law and twisted it to fit their own purposes. They looked good, attractive. But Jeremiah reminded them that their worldly wisdom, power, and wealth were not worth boasting about. Now, this is a truth that runs through the Bible, cover to cover, and it's very appropriate for our day, is it not? To boast in wisdom, power, wealth. Let's let's think about these. Think about wisdom for a moment. Wisdom has a way of puffing us up and covering some insecurities in our heart that we don't want anybody to know. It, It makes us feel smarter than we actually are. I remember feeling the intoxicating rush of knowledge when I went to seminary. I was a very average student. 
wasn't awful, but I certainly did not stand out. I just kind of middle of the pack, buzzed through, got my grades, got out. But things started together when I went to seminary. The storyline of the Bible started to click. And you know what happened? It became intoxicating. I became an information junkie. I started reading and I, I couldn't stop. Blogs, posts, everything I could get my hands on. I just wanted to fill it up. Why? Because I finally had something to think about. I could, I, it, 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 it feels good to have answers. People can come to you. Hey, what does this mean? <laughs> Let me tell you what this means. It feels really good to have answers for people. And that's what education does for us. It puffs us up. It makes us feel like we're something. But it's a dangerous place. Because you know what can happen? As a minister of the gospel, I can start trusting in my books and in my commentaries and not in prayer. And that's not what God's people need. It, there's nothing different when we trust in our books than, than the Israelites saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We need to trust in the power of God alone. What a waste when we trust in our own wisdom. The Bible reminds us, and this is a truth that we need reminding of today, that wisdom is futile. Think of Solomon. He wanted wisdom, right? And God gave him unsurpassed wisdom. And so he dove into the study of everything, science, math. He dove into this uh, just pursuit of wisdom and he became very wise. But what happened to him? Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Opening chapter, chapter one, what did he say? What a waste. What a waste. It's like chasing after the wind because the more you know, the more pain you have to endure. There are some things that you just can't find the answers to. What a waste. Now, wisdom is a wonderful gift. I want you to hear that. And so students, if you're in here and you go home and say, mom, I don't have to do my math homework. The Bible says so. You're wrong, right? Do your math homework and don't complain about it. There we go. So wisdom is a wonderful gift, but it's not worth boasting about. It's not worth boasting about. The Bible teaches us where true wisdom begins. The fear of the Lord. You realize your limits and you begin to fear the Lord and that is where true wisdom is found when you say, I don't have all the answers. Think about strength. Strength also has a way of covering our flaws. We can do this a lot of ways, through physical workout, through just kind of building ourselves up, having this persona that you'll never touch me, power, beauty. There's lots of ways that we can cover our flaws through physical uh, means. It's always had a, a control in our world, but it seems out of control these days, does it not? I was traveling through Charlotte a few weeks ago and I noticed that one intersection, it, it, I could count them up at a red light. There were seven different fitness centers. Seven! They all had a different philosophy that you do this thing and you'll get better and, and they all had like a nutrition store right next to it. That's a lot. Our world is obsessed right now. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that a sign of a healthy society? Or is that a sign of a, a society that's sick? If anyone can speak to the power, the, 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 the lure of wisdom, but also the futility, of, not, not of wisdom, but of, of power, but also the futility of power, it would be Samson, right? Just as Solomon was given divine wisdom, Samson, you remember in the book of Judges, was given divine strength. And because of that, as a kid, I loved Samson. He was one of my favorites. Why? Because he could kill a lion with his bare hands. And that's what I wanted to do. As a puny little boy, I wanted to be able to have that strength. I, I looked up to Samson. He was my hero because he was strong. But as I get older, I start to feel sorry for Samson. Because when his power was taken away from him, what did he have? Nothing. 
Isn't it interesting that the little bit of character that Samson developed happened when his eyes were gouged out and he lost all of his strength? That's when Samson learned how to pray. Strength and beauty are wonderful gifts. I want you to hear that. They're wonderful, wonderful gifts, but they are nothing to boast about. True strength comes when we learn our limits and trust in the Lord, just like true wisdom. Paul reminds us that our power is made perfect in what? Weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Think about money. I don't have to spend much time here because we all know this. Money is a futile, futile resource. Jesus told a story about a, a rich man that came across a large sum. He tore down his barns, built bigger ones, and he said, I, 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 I have it made. I, I can finally relax. I could eat the best food. I can drink, and now I can be joyful. This man was living the life that so many of us want. Money will solve all of our problems. We'll be able to kick, it, kick back, enjoy life. But you remember God's reply? You fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Money is a wonderful resource, but it is definitely not worth boasting about. It will leave you in a night. You'll wake up and have nothing left. Don't boast in money. Someone else, and Jesus reminds us, this is, this is just a, a, a gripping truth. The things you've prepared are gonna be somebody else's. Someone else is gonna wear your clothes one day and drive your car and live in your house. That's the truth of it. Money is a wonderful resource, but it's not worth boasting about. I could continue to elaborate. This is good stuff. We could, we could continue to work through these worldly resources, but, but I imagine you know the futility of them. You've probably at some point in your life, maybe even now, have put your hope in these resources and you know that they let you down. Here's the problem. What do you do? You can't shake it. You know why? Because probably for most of us in this room, these worldly resources, were, were, these, were, were, these idols, were wrapped into our identity before we even knew what was happening. At a very young age, maybe you got humiliated on the playground and you decided, I will never let that happen to me again. And you decided to work harder than everyone else so that you could be powerful and strong. Maybe you got made fun of trying to read a book. And before you knew it, you were on this quest to be the smartest kid in the room. Before your life even started, you have bowed down to this idol of education over and over and over. So you can have influence. You can have somebody to say, and you can put those kids back in their place. Maybe money, maybe your lack of resources as a kid is driving you to work harder than everybody else now so that you have money, so that your kids don't have to live the same way. This happens to us. Our identity becomes wrapped up in these idols. And so when we say, don't boast in these, you're like, what do I boast about then? If, if these were taken away from me, I would have nothing left. If your bank account were drained, who would you be? If you got fired and you didn't have that position, who would you be? That's a scary thought, isn't it? If your body were struck with a disease, who would you be now? This is a reality that so many are, are, are dealing with right now in this room. And it's a reality that the rest of us are scared to face. It's a terrifying thought. If I can't boast in these, what do I do? Do I live an empty, miserable life? No. This is where the biblical message is so brilliant. The Bible warns us against boasting in the wrong things, but it doesn't say stop boasting. 
It doesn't say leave that for a life of misery and emptiness and foolishness. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says stop boasting in these and learn to boast in the right things. So many of you are scared to leave your idols because you can't imagine life without them. You think your life would be over, but that is where life begins. Stop boasting in those boast in the right things. Let's finish Jeremiah's message. But let him who boasts, chapter, or verse uh, 24, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We have a reason to boast this morning. I want you to hear this. You have a reason to boast apart from your own pride and your own wealth and wisdom. The reason to boast today is you serve a God that loves you, not because you're rich, not because you're powerful or beautiful or smart or funny. You serve a God that loves you even when you were dead in your sins because that is who God is, amen. He's committed to practicing steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. He loves you. He's not an angry deity waiting for you to fail like everybody else in your life. He is a loving father that is ready to forgive you when you do fail and to give you life. He wants to know you. He wants to be your God. He wants you to be his people. He wants to give you something to boast about. But here's the key. You, you cannot come in your strength and your, weakness, your strength and power. You have to enter this relationship with God in your brokenness, in your weakness. You can't reason your way to him. You can't buy your way to him. You have to come empty-handed. I think Hezekiah is a good example for us. I mentioned him earlier. When the Assyrians were bearing down on Jerusalem, what did Hezekiah have? Nothing. Read the text. The the Assyrian commanders were mocking him, humiliating him. He looked foolish. He looked weak. And it drove him to his knees. And the Assyrians were thwarted. And by the next night, you reckon they were partying in, in Jerusalem? That They had something to boast about? And was it their own resources and powers? No, they were boasting in the strong name of God who drove away the enemy. And so if you find yourself out of resources this morning, empty-handed, broken, hurting, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know why? Because you have a reason to boast. We spend our lives trying to... to to get away from that broken position in life. We try to build wealth and status, but those are nothing to boast about. We serve a God that is ready to meet us in our weakness. And do you know where he meets us most profoundly in our weakness? The New Testament teaches us the cross. The cross. I began this message with an appeal to go to the cross. Let us go outside of the city and bear the reproach of Christ. I'd like to conclude, come back around and say, let's go back outside, but let's do it with a new attitude. Instead of keeping it at arm's length and saying, that's a life I never wanna live, let's, let's boldly, joyfully admit our weaknesses, leave our idols and go to the cross this morning because that is where God demonstrates his power, his wisdom, his strength. Now, this is a message that, again, pops up all over the New Testament, and it's the message that Paul specifically wanted to to preach to the Corinthian church. If you remember, the Corinthian church was in danger of losing the message of the cross, the power of the cross, in favor of worldly wisdom, rhetoric, eloquence, 
flowery speech. And what was it doing to the church? It was dividing them into different camps. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Peter. I'm with Paul. And Paul preaches to him and he says, stop that. When I came to you, he said, I didn't come with lofty speech. I didn't come with wisdom. I didn't dress my message up with flowery rhetoric or eloquent words. I came to you in weakness and knew nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And then in verse 26 to 31 of chapter one, he will give the New Testament version of Jeremiah's message. I think Paul was doing his devotions in Jeremiah that morning when he's thinking about this, the divisions in, in Corinth because he goes back to Jeremiah's message to a hardened, arrogant people and he rewords it for the church. You ready for this? See the similarities. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. And listen to what Jesus has become to us now. Wisdom from God. You renounced a pursuit of worldly wisdom, and what do you have now? The wisdom of God in the cross. Righteousness sanctification, redemption. Think of the wealth that you have being redeemed out of your life of sin. Think of the strength and the power that you have knowing that Christ is your righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. That is our power this morning. So, verse 31, as it is written from the prophet Jeremiah, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul wanted the church to remember their weakness, not to live a weak, miserable, powerless life. No, so that they could go to the cross and experience the power of God. And so let's go to the cross this morning. Let's boast in the power of Christ crucified. We may be wise, powerful, wealthy. We might have status on this earth, but those are nothing to boast about. They will let you down. The only one that will not let us down is Jesus. And so let us go outside of this city, leave our idols behind and bear the reproach of Christ because that is where he will lift us up. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. I wanna close with this. Earlier this week, I was going through, I have a hymnal in my living room and I was going through the songs and there's a, a, a chunk of songs from Good Friday, you know, about the cross on Good Friday. And I started reading through these old songs that I had learned in childhood. And you know what I found? The most interesting feature. When these authors, Christians throughout the ages spoke of the cross, they, they spoke of an attraction to the cross. Because Christians throughout the century have known the strange power that exists when we lay our own strength down and embrace our weakness and go to the cross of Jesus. I glory in the cross. I cherish the cross. Jesus, keep me near the cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. The one that stuck out to me, to be honest, was a song that I've never taken seriously. I sang it a billion times growing up but I don't think I grasped the brilliance of it this, until this week. But I sing it in tears in my living room because it is filled with the power 
of the gospel. I want you to listen to the fourth verse. And in fact, did this first service, I'm gonna make a fool of myself. I'm gonna sing it. And you're gonna sing it with me. And we're gonna boast in the power of the cross this morning. We cherish the old rugged cross.